This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Good evening. Well, we're through with Acts, and after finishing that study, we're next going to be studying Hebrews. But in between Acts and Hebrews, we're going to have a short series of lessons on Jewish history leading up to uh, Hebrews. Uh, this is actually our second class on Jewish history. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard um, a, a lesson on Josephus, and that was our, our first class. Uh, what I'm going to talk about tonight is a, a, another topic that's important with Jewish history. When we studied Josephus, I mentioned that it was a very important extra-biblical source of Jewish history. Um, another very important extra-biblical source of Jewish history, uh, although I would say extra-biblical and biblical since it combines them, are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, and we'll probably carry over some into next week. Um, the first question is why study about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, there are a lot of reasons. Um, one reason is that many nonsensical claims have been made about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and to refute those claims, we need to know something about them. Uh, and I think you'll find a lot of people out in the world know a little about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they've probably heard some of the, the, uh, the crazy claims that have been made about them over the years. Um, you know, to start, there is no direct relationship uh, between uh, Christians and the scrolls. Um, I'll mention briefly a possible theory on that, but, but the scrolls are from the Old Testament, and, and they predate, uh, predate the first century by, uh, by some number of years. Um, but many of the claims have involved Jesus and, and others, uh, John the Baptist, for example. We'll talk about some of those tonight. Uh, the Russian Pravda once ran a story that said the scrolls proved that Jesus never existed. Of course, nonsense. Um, others say that some of the Dead Sea Scrolls have not been released because they're being edited by Christians who fear they will undermine the Christian faith. Also nonsense. Um, a documentary on Australian TV said that Jesus did not die on the cross, but he survived and spent the remainder of his life in Qumran, where the scrolls were made. More nonsense. Um, so we need to be able to intelligently discuss the scrolls with people who might say something like that to us, so I think it's important that we know something about them. That's one reason to study them. Another reason to study the scrolls is that they will help us in our faith because they show us how faithfully the scriptures have been transmitted over the centuries and brought to us through God's providence. Um, when we study the scrolls, we're looking at the Hebrew Bible as it existed in the first century and the preceding one or two hundred years before Christ. Um, if we did not have the Dead Sea Scrolls, the next oldest copy of the Old Testament that we have is a thousand years later. A thousand years later, the Codex Leningrad, which dates to about a thousand AD. That, by the way, is what our modern Hebrew translations are based on. Uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls have helped us with some textual difficulties here and there, very minor. In fact, when we compare the, the Codex Leningrad with something a thousand years earlier in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we find is that you basically have the exact same text. There are a few minor variations here and there, but the two texts are essentially the same. And believe me, that came as quite a shock to the liberals of the day. 
uh, because they were hoping the scrolls would show that the text had changed dramatically over the years. It had not. It had not at all. The scrolls overwhelmingly support the text that we have today and show God's providence in preserving it faithfully throughout the centuries. You know, a very popular theory among liberal scholars, even to this day, is that the book of Isaiah is really three books, with the, with the uh, first book ending at the end of chapter 39. And they would tell you then that these books had been glued together and they would give various dates for when they thought that happened. Um, there is a complete scroll of Isaiah among the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, there are several. And when you look at those scrolls, when you get to the end, of course, they're not divided into chapters like our Bibles, but when you get to the end of where chapter 39 is, chapter 40 just starts right from there. There is no break at all between chapter 39 and chapter 40, which again fully supports the truth of the matter, which is that Isaiah is one book written by one author. You know, I mentioned that there are a few minor variations here and there, and sometimes those are very helpful to us also because... Just to give an example, Acts 7, verse 14, Stephen says that Jacob's tribe came to Egypt with 75 people. If you go back to Genesis 46, 27, it says 70 people. Stephen says 75. If you flip back in your Bible, Genesis says 70. The Qumran Dead Sea Scroll copy of Genesis says 75, just like Stephen said which tells us that that Codex Leningrad, there was a very slight scribal error somewhere along the way that changed 70, 75 to 70. But 75 is the correct value, as Stephen said, and as the copy of Genesis from the Dead Sea Scrolls affirms. So that's one reason to study it. It gives us great confidence in the text of Scripture that we have today. Another reason to study the scrolls is that they contain a lot more than just the text of the Old Testament. Yes, the text of the Old Testament is there, at least much of it is there, uh, but there are many other books, texts among the Dead Sea Scrolls that give us very important background information to the world of Jesus and the world of the Jews and the world of the first century and the people that Jesus encountered and the people that we read about in the Gospel accounts. The scrolls are invaluable for helping us understand that world and see how Scripture was interpreted and applied at that time. So there are many reasons to study the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I would add a fourth. It's just they're fascinating, so they're really interesting. So I hope that's another reason. Um, Twelve scroll fragments were on display in Houston in 2004, and I hope, I hope uh, some of you were able to go see them when they were here. Um, it was really a great exhibit. Um, let me just say this. They don't get out too often, so if they ever come back, Go and see them. If you ever get a chance, go and see them. Let's talk about the discovery of the scrolls. How do we have the scrolls? Uh, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls occurred in the spring of 1947. 1947. And that discovery in the spring of 1947 has rightly been called the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. The greatest archaeological discovery of all time. Well, how did it happen? Well, there are several stories about how it happened. Uh, the one you hear most often is, it involves an Arab boy named Muhammad Adi, Muhammad the wolf, who was out herding goats in the area. And when one of the goats wandered into a cave, uh, Muhammad threw a rock in to scare the goat out, and he heard a jar break. So he went in to investigate, thus finding the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. Um, that's the story that was largely published. Um, 
There's another account, though, that has Muhammad the wolf uh, smuggling goods from Jordan to Bethlehem and seeking refuge in that cave and discovering the jars. Uh, I tend to think that's probably the truthful account, and the other account was the one they used for publication, but we don't know. They all involve Muhammad the wolf, though, so he was probably involved in some way. Uh, the, the, the scrolls have been carbon dated. They, the carbon dating gives us dates from 385 BC to around 82 BC. Uh, they've also been linguistically dated by looking at the characters and the language that's used, and that gives dates from 225 BC to around 50 BC. Um, so, you know, take the, the time right before Christ and then go back a couple hundred years, and in that period of time is when the scrolls were made and the scrolls were copied. Uh, from, from other manuscripts that dated even further back, which we don't have. So that's, uh, that's when these, these scrolls were transcribed. Now the ink that's in the scrolls is kind of interesting. It's a black carbon soot from olive oil, and then it's mixed with honey, oil, vinegar, and water to make their ink. Um, there's a very few instances of red ink in the scrolls, and that was made with a volcanic mineral. Now, most of the scrolls were on an animal parchment, animal hide, uh, known as vellum. There were a few on papyrus, and the very few were on metal. Uh, why did they last so long? Well, of course, a lot of it's the climate. Very dry, arid climate, very low humidity inside the cave. Um, in fact, most of the damage that was done to the scrolls happened after they were discovered. After they were discovered. Uh, they were handled very carelessly by those who first discovered them. Um, in fact, even those who first studied them handled them very carefully. Um, if you can believe it, those that first studied them tried to piece them back together with adhesive tape. Uh, and that caused a great deal of damage. Um, they then thought, well, we'll get smart, and they, they put them under glass plates. Well, when you take something like that and put it under a glass plate, what else are you trapping under that glass plate? Moisture. And they started to decay from that. Uh, in 1956, uh, there was a war between Israel and Egypt. So what did they do? They bundled up the uh, scrolls, put them in manila envelopes, and put them in a bank vault. Okay, the bank vault caused humidity. The manila envelopes had glue that leaked all over them. This is from people that are trying to keep them preserved. So most of the damage happened after they were found. Um, by 1958, about 5% of the scrolls had completely deteriorated. Uh, that problem did not begin to turn around until the 70s and 80s. And in fact, it wasn't until 1991 that they were finally stored in a temperature-controlled laboratory, and the tape and the other contaminations were finally uh, removed as best as they could be. Publication of the scrolls took decades. Uh, that, in fact, caused a great deal of academic controversy um, and led to quite a few of the conspiracy theories about the scrolls. The final volume was not published until 2009. Now, fortunately for us, the method of storing the scrolls, in fact, contributed to their extraordinary preservation. Uh, many of the scrolls were placed in these clay jars, and they weren't sealed. The lid was just plopped down on top. But the, but the scrolls began to deteriorate, and it formed kind of a glue or a seal in the lid. And once that seal formed, the deterioration stopped. And so a lot of the, that's really why a lot of them were preserved. Uh, certainly was not intentional on the part of the people that put them in the cave. It just it, it happened that way. Um, could be some providence involved in that too, uh, certainly. 
Um, after they were found, the scrolls were brought to Bethlehem, which was the nearest market town, and, and attempts were made to sell them. Um, at that time, Bethlehem was divided like an armed camp, um, and it made it difficult for the Bedouins to dispose of the scrolls. Uh, eventually, they were sold in two lots, one to Hebrew University and one to a Syrian Orthodox monastery, which later sold them to the Hebrew University, which still owns most of them to this day. All of the scrolls from the initial find, which is cave number one, we're going to be talking about numbered caves tonight. Cave number one is the initial find. All those books are now located in the shrine of the book, the shrine of the book, which is adjacent to Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, they're owned by Israel, although I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that that ownership is contested by Jordan and the Palestinian authorities. Um, but there's actually a few of the fragments that are owned by others. And uh, eight of the Dead Scroll fragments are owned by the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, now, the documents include a lot of things, biblical manuscripts, certainly. Um, but they also include previously known apocryphal and pseudepigraphal books, um, unknown documents that we wouldn't know about at all if it weren't for the Dead Sea Scrolls. It has sectarian documents and non-sectarian documents, all sorts of things. And all in all, about 850 manuscripts have been found. Uh, some are just fragments, but 850 different books. Um, over, uh, over 200 of them come from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. We have 20 scrolls of Genesis. We have 18 of Exodus, 16 of Leviticus, 11 of Numbers, 33 of Deuteronomy, 21 of Isaiah, 6 of Jeremiah, 7 of Ezekiel, 8 of Daniel, 10 of the 12 minor prophets. There are 40 scrolls of the Psalms. You know, we talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls when we studied the book of Daniel. You may recall that. Uh, Daniel's extremely detailed prophecies that we looked at in the book of Daniel, they describe history from time, Daniel's time all the way up to the time of Christ, going from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And it's just laid out in a panorama we could see in the book of Daniel when we studied that. Well, liberals, of course, hate that. They reject that because they can't have any predictive prophecy in the Bible. And we talked about this. So what do they do? They say, okay, well, we got four nations. That's clear. So I'm, the liberals say they're going to be Babylon and not Medo-Persia as one, one nation like Daniel always treated it. But they split it in half. So you have, you have Babylon, you have the Medes, you have the Persians, then you have the Greeks. Nothing works right, but at least the liberals are happy and there's no predicted prophecy. Um, why do they do that? I mean, it's just their, their academic integrity suffers greatly when they do that because it's so, it's so crazy. Why, but why do they do that? The answer is they cannot post-date the book past the Romans. That's what they'd like to do. Oh, well, Daniel was written in the first century or something, and there was, it was after the Roman Empire. They can't do that. Why? Well, a number of reasons, but one big reason is that we have copies of Daniel among the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's a hard stop on their ability to push Daniel any further ahead in time. So instead, they just toss their academic integrity out the window. Now, Cave 1 produced the initial excitement. Uh, in that cave, as I mentioned, two scrolls of Isaiah were found. They're both in that book of the, the shrine of the book there. Uh, if you want to see the jars, you can go to London, to the British Museum. They don't have the scrolls, but they got the jars. For some, for some reason, the British weren't able to steal the scrolls themselves. But, um, the first cave manuscripts were published between 1950 and 1956. Um, 
Also in that first cave, they have commentaries. One is a commentary on Habakkuk. Um, now, if you start studying the scrolls, you're going to see these long lists of numbers and, 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 and alphabetic characters. That's how they refer to the scrolls. So, for example, you might pick up a book and see 4QPISAC, 4 through 7, Roman 2, 2 through 4. What in the world does that mean? The 4 means cave 4, cave number 4. The, the Q means Qumran. All the Dead Sea Scrolls will have a Q on it. Uh, the P meant Pesher, which is a commentary. ISA would be Isaiah. Um, C would be the third copy of Isaiah. Uh, 4 through 7 would be fragments 4 through 7. 2, the Roman 2, would have been column 2. And finally, the 2 through 4 would be lines 2 through 4. So you read that little list, you know exactly the cave, you know the scroll, you know the number of the scroll, you know the page, the column, the lines, everything. And that, that's how they're described. Why do they call a commentary a pesher, P-E-S-H-E-R? Well, because after giving the biblical text, the writer of the commentary would use the word pesher, Hebrew word, meaning the interpretation or meaning is. And in fact, we see that same word in Daniel. That word's in Daniel to describe the interpretation of the dreams. Um, now, there are a lot of other books that were found there, in addition to biblical books. One of them is the Manual of Discipline about the, the community there. We'll talk a lot more about them uh, later. Uh, collection of Thanksgiving Psalms was found there. Now, after that initial find, the Bedouins, as well as the archaeologists, continued to search for additional caves. Uh, a second cave yielded about 100 fragments from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Psalms, and Ruth. Um, now, some of the scrolls found during these searches made their way into private hands, private collectors. And to this day, they haven't been accounted for. Now, most of them have likely deteriorated due to poor storage. But it's possible there are Dead Sea Scrolls out there that we don't even know about that are in hands of private collectors today. In 1954, if you'd opened the Wall Street Journal, you would have seen this advertisement. Four Dead Sea Scrolls for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution. Well, the, uh, the Hebrew University saw that ad, and they bought them for $250,000, uh, which was quite a bit of money in 1954. It's quite a bit of money today. Um, and they brought them back to Jerusalem. So at least those four are back among the collection. Now, caves 2, 3, and 5 through 10, not 4, but 2 through 10, except for 4, have been called the minor caves. Why? Because not much was found there, about 130 fragments. Uh, most notable is from Cave 3, they found the Copper Scroll, which is actually inscribed on copper, and it even includes a hint of buried treasure. Never been found. Now, Cave 7 is interesting because some scholars believe that a small little fragment from the Gospel of Mark has been found in Cave 7. Um, others say, no, it's from the Greek Old Testament. But some say, no, it's from the Gospel of Mark. Now, if it were from the Gospel of Mark, that would be really interesting because that would date it around A.D. 50 and would make it the earliest known co copy, fragment actually, of a New Testament book that we still have. And it would make it very, very close to when the book, Gospel of Mark was actually written. Um, so uh, that's a controversy that's, that's, that's going on. But some say that. Now, next in importance to cave one uh, was cave number four. Cave number four. 
Tens of thousands of fragments were found in cave number four, calling one, causing one scholar to call it the ultimate jigsaw puzzle, trying to piece all that back together. Um, over 120 biblical manuscripts were found in cave number four. Uh, every book of the Old Testament is represented except for Esther. Esther. Why not Esther? It could just be a coincidence. But it also could be that the Essenes, who we're going to say in a moment, uh, is, are the ones who copied all this down. They may not like the Feast of Purim. If so, that may explain why they didn't like Esther. Before this find, as I mentioned, our earliest complete copy of the Hebrew Old Testament dated from around 916 A.D., that Codex Leningrad I mentioned. Um, so most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are 1,000 years older than any copy that existed prior to that find with some being even older than that. Uh, one copy of Leviticus dates from the mid-third century BC, making that copy of Leviticus at present the oldest biblical manuscript in existence. To put this in perspective, and perhaps better explain why this is the greatest archeological discovery of all time, in Luke 4, 17 and 18, we read the following. And there was delivered unto him, Jesus, the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he continues to quote more of Isaiah 61. Think for a moment about that scroll of Isaiah that Jesus was handed and then read from. Isaiah, as we know, has more messianic prophecies than any book in the, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah, by the way, comes in second. We'll be studying that book soon. The copies of Isaiah found in cave number four date to about the same time as that scroll that Jesus was handed and opened up and read from. That's why it's the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. To date, 11 caves have produced at least 400 manuscripts. Late breaking news, as Channel 2 always says at night. Late breaking news. The scrolls have again been in the news recently. If you were reading the newspaper or the web just last week, or maybe the week before, but in the month of February of this year, you will have seen that they have discovered a 12th cave. A 12th cave was discovered this month. Um, and here's, here's an article that explained it. Just this past month, an excavation led by Hebrew University announced the discovery of a new scroll-related cave at Qumran in the West Bank, the 12th to be exact, and the first to be successfully excavated in more than 60 years. Beyond the entrance, they found the roof of the, roof of the cave had been caved in. They proceeded with caution, um, and they found that that cave-in was likely intentional uh, because they, inside they found broken jars and lids along with fragments of cloth, wrappings, and leather and string, which must have held scrolls, but they did not find any scrolls. They had all been stolen probably in the 1950s by looters. Probably by looters. Um, so it's kind of a sad end there, but they did find another cave. There could be additional caves. They're still looking. They're still looking. There could be more caves out there. All right, who, who produced these manuscripts? We've got a few more minutes left. This is going to be, obviously, a, a, a multi-part lesson on the Dead Sea Scrolls, but let's talk for a little bit about who produced them. 
Um, we've already made reference to the Essenes a, a few times tonight, and most scholars believe that the scrolls were produced by a group of Essene Jews who lived in Qumran, which is a small community of about 1,200 yards from the Dead Sea, so very close to the Dead Sea. Uh, Josephus, who we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, he was at one time an Essene, and he gives us a lot of firsthand information about that group. Um, their origins aren't known, but some have speculated it goes back to the time of the Babylonian captivity. Others think they developed in Palestine as a response to the growing Greek influence on the Jews. Uh, Josephus introduces the Essenes by saying they had a reputation for cultivating peculiar sanctity. Uh, they lived a very serious and somber life. Uh, Josephus tells us they had great love for each other, but they didn't have very great love for anybody else. Uh, Josephus tells us they shunned pleasures as a vice. They regarded temperance and control of the passions as a special virtue. As a rule, they disdained marriage for themselves. They did not allow women into Qumran. Uh, Josephus says they despised riches, they believed in equality of possession, uh, they held their possessions in common, we're told. Uh, some Essenes lived in communities such as this one outside of the city. Others lived in the city. Josephus tells us that there were about 4,000 Essenes total. Uh, in the Wars of the Jews, which is one of the books Josephus wrote that we talked about a few weeks ago, here's how he describes the Essenes. But the habit and management of their bodies is such as children who are in fear of their masters. Nor do they allow of the change of garments or of shoes till they be first entirely torn to pieces or worn out by time. Nor do they buy or sell anything to one another, but every one of them giveth what he hath to him that wanteth it. And as for their piety towards God, it is very extraordinary. For before sunrise they speak not a word about profane matters, but put up certain prayers which they have received from their forefathers. Well, how did you enter the group of the Essenes? Well, he described that also. He says, But now if anyone hath a mind to come over to their sect, he is not immediately admitted, but he has prescribed the same method of living which they use, and for a year, while he continues excluded. And when he hath given evidence during that time that he can observe their continence, he approaches nearer to their way of living and is made partaker of the waters of purification. Yet he is not even now admitted to live with them. For after this demonstration of his fortitude, his temper is tried two more years. And if he's worthy, then they admit him into the society. So yeah, I think it's kind of a closed society. Uh, now much has been speculated about it links between the Essenes and various people in the New Testament, including Jesus, but also John the Baptist. Uh, now without Josephus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, we wouldn't really know anything about the Essenes. We might not even know they existed. Um, but we'll talk here in a moment about those supposed links uh, between the two. Um, now, of course, one immediate question is why isn't there a direct mention of the Essenes in the New Testament? We see the, scri we see the scribes, we see the Sadducees, we see the Pharisees. Where do we see the Essenes in the New Testament? There certainly is no direct mention of them. Now, you'll notice I'm saying direct, direct mention. And that's because we're going to see some possible indirect mentions of the Essenes in the New Testament. But certainly the word Essene is not used. Why? Well, a number of reasons. If in fact there is no mention of them, it's possible, although I think there are some oblique mentions of them. But they did live very quiet lives. They were removed from the city and from public affairs. They had, would have had perhaps very little opportunity to come in conflict with Christ and with the apostles. Um, second, Given the simple and virtuous lifestyles that we just described, Jesus might not have had the same quarrels with them he had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, 
So that's perhaps another reason. Uh, now, in excavating the area in which these were created, archaeologists have found a large rectangular community center uh, where a lot of things would have happened. They found a large tower that probably would have been used for defense. They found a scriptorium, a writing room, where all these scribes were copied. They found ink wells. They found dried ink. So, I mean, they, they know exactly where these things were copied. Um, most of the structures, though, show severe earthquake damage. Uh, most think that was dating back to 31 BC when Josephus tells us a huge earthquake uh, hit Judea. Um, the settlement was likely built around 110 BC, occupied up until that earthquake in 31 when it was abandoned. Uh, but during the reign of Archelaus in around 4 BC to AD 6, uh, it was reoccupied by the original group. The Essenes came back and reoccupied it. Um, and it was occupied then until A.D. 68. We know what happened then. The Romans came in, destroyed it, and destroyed everything, and that was the end of them. Uh, you know, Jerusalem fell in 70, but the Romans were working their way toward Jerusalem, and they got to Qumran in 68. Uh, that, that was when they hid the scrolls. 68, the Romans are coming. That is when they put those scrolls in those caves in A.D. 68. What we're going to look at next week are a number of things. Uh, we're going to look at the sectarian scrolls, which are also fascinating. Not part of the Bible, but just other books they found there. Uh, they found all kinds of interesting things, and we're going to look at some of those. We're going to look at some things that they tell us about New Testament times. We're going to look at Christianity in the scrolls. Um, we're, going to, we're going to wonder if maybe we have some language that Paul might have taken from the scrolls. There's, that's a possibility. Uh, we're going to look at... at at, at, uh, at the idea that Christianity was somehow related to the Essenes. It wasn't, but we're going to look at that point and see, uh, see what the arguments are. Uh, we're going to look at the theory that Jesus was somehow linked to the Essenes. Uh, and, and again, we're going to find some interesting things I think Jesus may have directed to the Essenes, but Jesus certainly was not an Essene. Uh, we're going to look at John the Baptist, which is interesting. He comes from the exact same area out in the wilderness. He's using some of the same terminology that we find in the scrolls. Uh, so that's also an interesting thing we're going to look at. Uh, and uh, all that will start up next week. So thank you very much for your attention. I, I hope you're finding this interesting. Uh, I, I certainly think it's interesting. And uh, after this, we're going to be doing some other topics in Jewish history, including, for example, looking at the Jewish feasts, all of which point to Christ. Uh, let's end with a closing prayer. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.